Listen to the good news proclaimed in the gospel according to St. Matthew, reading from chapter 23, verses 23 to 26. Christ our Savior. Woe to you, teachers of the law and Pharisees, you hypocrites! You give a tenth of your spices, mint, dill, and cumin, but you neglect to the more important matters of the law, justice, mercy, and faithfulness. You should have practiced the latter without neglecting the former. You blind guides, you strain out a gnat, but swallow a camel. Woe to you, teachers of the law, Pharisees, you hypocrites! You clean the outside of a cup and dish, but the inside are still full of greed and self-indulgence. Blind Pharisee, first clean the inside of the cup and dish, and then the outside will also be clean. This is the Gospel of Christ. Lord, as we reflect more on uh, the letter to the Galatians, we ask that you speak into our hearts by your Spirit. Amen. Please grab a seat. I looked up the definition of déjà vu on, on, the, on the net. So it's, uh, it's French, obviously. It literally means already seen. It's the phenomenon of having like a strong sensation that, that an event or an experience is somehow like experienced in the past, whether real or not. It's like a weird thing. You can, can't always put your finger on it, but like there's something familiar going on here. I'm sure I've like been here before or so-and-so said this before, but was it a dream or did it really happen? And, and it's not always clear. Now, as Christians, there are generally two responses we can have to the Old Testament. The first one is like, phew, what happened there? And the second is deja vu. You know, something, I've seen this before somewhere, I can't quite place it. And uh, the phew one is like, hey, there's this massive gap. You know, what, what went down there? Like, I mean, Abraham and all those guys, that just seems a massive gap to, to what we encounter in Jesus. The deja vu one says, there's something about Abraham that's very familiar, you know, uh, and, and it feels like I've seen it before. The less common, I guess, is the deja vu version, um, but if that's your version, then it's spot on. God has not changed. He's the same yesterday, today, and forever. And Paul is using this deja vu argument against uh, the bad teachers, we'll call them that, in Galatia. We started looking at the letter to Galatians last week. Just to recap, first century Christians living in what's modern day Turkey, and Paul is writing to them a very direct letter. Um, they've got issues. There's a new teaching that's come in and people are excited. They think this is like the new wine. And uh, these new teachers are bringing us a new flavor. And Paul is saying, it's not new wine. They are bringing you acid that will poison and kill your faith. He's saying they have a dangerous teaching. And really what it amounted to was that they were saying, well, you've been <coughs> Jews and you followed the law. And now you're following Jesus. But you cannot leave the old Jewish ways behind you. And, Paul, and these bad teachers were saying, you still need to follow the, the your Jewish practices in order to please God. And part of that meant that uh, those who were not Jews, the Gentiles, we were being excluded. So last week we looked at some of the strong words that Paul had to say to them. But you can't just have strong words. I mean, you know, even in my family I know that when you have a discussion, you can't just say, like, because I'm the dad, boom, this is how it's going to be. 
Sometimes there has to be a bit of reason thrown in there. And Paul is now at the point in the letter where he's, okay, maybe it works like that in your family. <laughs> Paul is now getting to the point where he's putting some substance to his arguments. He said to them, you are foolish, but now he's explaining to them exactly why they are foolish. And in that, he uses this deja vu argument. And he does so by referring to one person and one person only. And that person is Abraham. Well, why Abraham? I guess Abraham because that's where the Jewish faith started. If you read the Old Testament, Genesis 1 to 11, that's like the curtain raiser, you know? You get the Garden of Eden, the flood, and all that kind of stuff, and then you get to Genesis 12. Boom. Abraham. He's the one who gets the party started. Uh, God says to him, I've got something going down. Uh, I want you to follow me. And Abraham responds to him. Abraham is the, he's like the founding patriarch. He's the numzan. He's the big chief. If there was like a Jewish rating, Abraham is like 100% pure, unadulterated. He's the, he's the real one. So, you know, if, if, if you're uh, teaching people uh, to go back to the Jewish faith, obviously Abraham is the, is the main man. It's also quite possible that these bad teachers are using Abraham to discredit Paul's teaching and the teachings about Jesus. They were, were probably saying that but what you're saying about Jesus is contradicting what we have received from our patriarch Abraham. So here Paul wades in with his most clear logical argument. He's, uh, and he's such a clear, clear orator. He is accusing them of breaking a logical law in their arguments, and he's saying your argument is flawed. Now, breaking a logical law is a serious crime, but it's not always easy to spot. A natural law, if you break a natural law, people will spot. You know, if you try and break the law of gravity, people will see you walking into church with a back brace. Exhibit A. <laughs> if you break a logical law, you might actually do it in such a way that it sounds intelligent. And they don't think idiot. They just think genius. I didn't see it that way before. That's no, amazing. Let me give you a few examples of breaking logical laws. Let's just say I'm having a conversation with Skew over there. I say, hey, Skew, I've just been for a little bit of a, a diagnosis there with my doctor, and I've got a serious learning disability. Green light. Can you hear me? Okay, good. I was talking... Save the applause to the end, please. <laughs> I was telling to skew, and I was about to break a logical law. I'd been for my assessments. I've got serious learning disability. My perception of people is very poor. You know, I'm, I'm, the doctor says, look, whatever you think about people, don't trust it because you're actually pretty messed up. So I'm telling Skew about this, and, and I said, Skew, I've actually got more bad news for you than that. It's not only me, but I honestly think that you've got the same problem. I've just broke, Skew uh, gets upset. He's broken a logical law because a guy's just told me, don't trust my opinion, and here's my opinion, you know. <laughs> it doesn't work like that. You can't do that. It's, you're breaking logical laws there. 
Another one that we come across often is, is, is what's called uh, you know, the threat of pluralism. You know, in today's society, it's seen as arrogant and rude to say that your religion is right and another religion is wrong. So the, 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 there are people who say, no, Mr. Christian, you cannot have a monopoly of the truth. You cannot. You cannot say that you are right and the Muslim is incorrect. But if you look carefully, there is somebody in that argument who's claiming to have a monopoly on the truth. And that is the person who's telling me that I cannot have the monopoly. Does that make sense? Yeah. They've broken a logical law. The law of non-contradiction. And you can actually think, gee, that sounds so right. But you, don't, you can say, oh, okay, well, you've just broken a logical law, which is not very clever. So, coming to our passage, the logical law that gets broken here is that the, the false teachers are saying, Abraham is opposed to the message of grace that the righteousness of God comes not from our behavior, but is a free gift of faith through Jesus. Abraham is opposed to that. Abraham supports the earning of righteousness through a behavior that pleases God. That is breaking a logical law. Let's go to our passage. Chapter 3, verse 6. Consider Abraham. He believed God, and it was credited to him as righteousness. Abraham believed God, and it was credited to him as righteousness. You cannot use Abraham to contradict the undeserved favor of God because he was its first recipient. Abraham did not follow the law. The law was not around. Abraham was a dude in like the desert. And he just decided to follow God. And God says, I give you righteousness. That's deja vu. I've seen that in Jesus. So what we see in Abraham is a glimmer of the, the light that we see shining in Jesus. So these, the, the law comes later. I mean, we might hear more about that next week. The law, uh, the Ten Commandments uh, that guides uh, the behavior of, 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 of God's people, comes in the middle of the Sinai Desert 400 and something years later. Abraham didn't even, it wasn't even in, in his conception. He received a free gift of grace from God. And that's, uh, and, and so, so Jesus is not contradicting Abraham. He is rather fulfilling the grace that we see manifest there. But there's more. That's not all. In verse 10, all who rely on observing the law are under a curse. For it is written, cursed is everyone who does not continue to do everything written in the book of the law. Verse 11, clearly no one is justified before, before God because of the law. So, so there's a problem here. Let's just say you're a teacher. We'll pick on Bridget. Where's Bridget? Her downstairs. We'll pick on her anyway because she's not here. <laughs> so Bridget in her class gets a 90% pass rate from her. We're not going to pick on you, Thomas, because uh, we know how sensitive you are about pass rates. So Bridget gets a 90% pass rate in her class, and they just think, hey, those 10% that didn't pass, they were slackers. You know? Um, and, and they blame the, the pupils. Now, if that ratio goes to like an 80% pass rate, 
they might start saying, gee, well, maybe Bridget could have done something slightly differently. If Bridget has a 100% failure rate, people might be more direct in the questions they ask. Surely, all of those pupils cannot be that dwarf. Surely. <laughs> so here's the problem. What Paul is saying, under the law, no one is righteous. No one is righteous. Either God was extremely impractical and unreasonable, putting together a system where nobody makes the grade. That is Dorf. Or you have misunderstood it. And that the purpose of the law is not to bring justification, but rather to point to Jesus. So there you have it. Um, Paul's saying that, that Jesus is not the, he is not the antithesis of Abraham. He is the fulfillment of the promise that you have. The law itself was pointing to God's free gift of grace in righteousness. A very powerful and convincing argument. The good news is, is that Paul's argument did the business. You know, sometimes I make arguments in my home and I, I mean, I lose, you know, so whatever happens just keeps on going. And my great philosophical uh, debate just kind of gets ignored and trampled on. Um, but Paul's, um, his argument did the business. The Galatians were transformed. They submitted themselves to the Spirit of God and they said, okay, we will change. We will change our behavior and our response. I said last week that this chapter, chapter 3 of Galatians, was one of the pivotal, pivotal passages for the Protestant Reformation 1500, or well, 14 and something years later. So what happened? It, Galatians does the business, and then the church slips back. We get the Protestant Reformation, and the church is again saying, it's not about the grace. It's about, you know, your behavior. And it's about cash flow. For goodness sakes, we'll sell you grace, you know. There's a price. And the Protestant Reformation said, ah, uh -uh, guys, that is, you, you just, you're getting it all wrong. So how is it that, that it does the business in the first century, and you get back to the 16th century, and Galatians 3 is having to do the business all over again? The, the, the danger is, is that we, we slip. And sometimes uh, heresy and, and, and things that pollute and distort the truth come back. Into, into our community. So, so the Galatians were foolish. And undoubtedly, as I said last week, we have a bit of foolishness amongst ourselves. Some more than others, admittedly. But, uh, but there will still, we will have been uh, led astray by something that is taking away our view of grace. How do we apply this passage to ourselves? How do we understand our foolishness and respond to God? Well, Paul gives us a clue. And, and he's, just, um, he's just a wonderful writer. He doesn't just, uh, he doesn't just tell us uh, about these great arguments, but he points to how you can see them manifest. He says, what you believe is not something you have to tell me. I can see it in how you behave. You're going to find this familiar. You know it all, but I'm going to read it anyway. Um, chapter 3, verse 26. You are all sons of God through faith in Christ. For all of you who were baptized into Christ have clothed yourselves in Christ. There is neither Jew nor Greek, slave nor free, male nor female. You are all one in Christ. If you belong to Christ, 
You are Abraham's seed, according to the promise. So the point he was making to them is that don't, I mean, they were excluding the, the, the Gentiles, uh, um, according to the bad teaching, um, who were the Greeks. The Greeks were getting battered in that community. And Paul was saying, if you are recipients of God's grace, I will be able to see how you've received that grace by how that grace gets passed on to others in your community. The acid test is the prejudice that you experienced amongst yourselves. If you've received God's grace, which just ignores all your failings and says you are righteous for what Jesus has done for you, yet you are prejudiced to other people, then that grace hasn't kind of worked its way completely through the system. So for the dudes in Galatia, the Greeks were getting told, <clears throat> firstly, it's like, sorry, you can't sit in the front row. Nowadays, nobody wants to sit there anyway. But, but, <laughs> um, and then, you know, they were getting like marginalized out, uh, out of the church. So, I mean, I don't, I mean, I don't know if we've got any Greeks here, but you're welcome. I mean, really, it's not a big issue anymore, you know. But we've got other issues that, uh, that, uh, um, that impact us today. Could it be that like where you live determines how I view you? Which, which is your country? Which is your neighborhood? The color of your skin? The language you speak? Because I don't understand you, I just think, well, you know, you're a bit different. Your occupation? You know, um, because of your occupation, I have prejudice towards you. Your wealth, how much money you have. Your relationship, whether you're single, married, divorced. Maybe you experience prejudice. Maybe it's your body mass index. We're a very get fit uh, culture. Well, why, are you, why are you laughing, Skew? <laughs> that was not an appropriate place to laugh. <laughs> anyway. Excuse <laughs> me. Okay, so we know excuse prejudice. You'll be coming up for prayer afterwards. <laughs> it could be your education, your, your age, your personality type, or, or even the rugby team you support. Prejudice manifests itself in our community in, in, in different ways. And what Paul is saying is that a, a, a community of Jesus, a community who has received grace, should be free from all of these things. They should be free. Abraham's righteousness was a gift of grace. So was ours. And as we live in a community of grace, we must not only be receivers of grace, but people who give grace in how we see other people. So Romans 12 says to us, be transformed by the renewing of your mind. And that's really an invitation that comes in parallel with Galatians chapter 3. So as we look to apply this passage to ourselves, we need to remind ourselves that we come here each week not only to be refreshed um, by the message, but also each week we have opportunities to lay down our prejudice. Um, we, we have a confession um, where we confess our prejudices before God and how we have judged other people un unfairly. We have uh, the Lord's Prayer where it talks about uh, laying down our own prejudices. And sometimes before communion we have what's called the prayer of humble access, you know, Nothing I've done has brought me to this table, but it's what you've done. So, so I ask you and encourage you to receive this passage as also an invitation to, 
to come to the Lord each week, to lay down those prejudices that uh, govern your heart and, and govern the way that you see other people. May our response to this passage be a simple prayer. Lord Jesus, give us a heart to receive grace and eyes to see prejudice. Amen. Let's, uh, let's pray as we're seated. Lord, your grace is so unique. And, uh, and it's, just, uh, it's just something that we, we can't really con compare it to anything. And, and free grace is, is something that we will always strive to understand better. Lord, we just thank you for the passion of your servants like Paul, who just had such a heart um, and, and were so in tune with your spirit that they were able to speak into, into situations where they saw your grace being threatened. And we acknowledge that like those Galatians, we too have our own issues of foolishness. And Lord, we ask that uh, you work in our hearts, that we may see and experience more of your grace, more of your riches, despite who we are. And we ask that you give us eyes to see our own prejudice, so that we can come and lay it at the foot of your cross. In your name we pray these things. Amen.